Cause we got the alternative energy right. On nuclear free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Technology Hello and welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. I'm Jessie Boylan and I'm producing this show from my home on Jarrah Country in central Victoria. This week we discuss nuclear power again, as it seems to be an issue that despite everything that is stacked against it, keeps on returning. The CSIRO have published their annual Gen Cost Report, which states that renewables remain the cheapest new build electricity generation option in Australia. And the case for nuclear power generation here still doesn't add up. To discuss this issue in depth, we are joined by National Nuclear Free Campaigner with Friends of the Earth, Dr Jim Green, who speaks to Chief Economist at CSIRO's Energy Business Unit, Paul Graham, who is also one of the lead authors of the GenCost report. We also speak to Dr Margaret Beavis, a former GP, as well as immediate past president of the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and the current co-chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia, as well as co-director of Quit Nukes. Margie lays out for us the many other reasons why, why nuclear power shouldn't be an option on the menu of energy sources. Let's now hear from Dr Jim Green and Paul Graham as they discuss why nuclear power is not a cost-effective option for the future of Australia's energy generation. Thanks for tuning in. The Radioactive Show is broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri land, and broadcast across this country on the Community Radio Network. I wonder if we could talk generally about the difficulty of costing small modular nuclear reactors when they don't have any meaningful existence. It sounds like an extremely difficult task, and I'm wondering if you can talk us through how you've approached that. Yeah, we've, we, this is something we've been talking with our stakeholders about really for the last four years we've been doing this work. Um, our preference is always to have data on projects that actually exist. Um, if we can't get that, we'd like to, um, maybe it exists overseas. That might be our next port of call. Um, if not, um, we'd like to see you know a variety of literature and try to triangulate um, some differences. The, the very last thing we're interested in probably is a vendor view uh, because vendor vendors who provide the technology typically underestimate what it costs to build a real project. Um, so yeah, we've landed on, we found studies that sort of cross-reference enough data points that we're, uh, we're happy to run with that, but um, it is very difficult when you don't have the project built. And I understand that CSIRO has had to deal with an awful lot of submissions over the past few years with people with widely divergent views, although that seems to have dropped down. You said you only had one submission in this past 12-month period. I wonder if you could talk about the politicking that you've been in the middle of between people with, uh, as I said, widely divergent views. Yeah, and it really does come to that point we just discussed. Obviously, we've got a lot of people who think we should be using vendor data. Um, lots of submissions just repeat the concept that they've they've heard that a supplier will supply it at this cost, uh, and it's been a process of us explaining why we're not uh, prepared to accept that kind of data. Um, eventually, we've sort of come to an agreement across 
various groups who have been contributing that um, whatever number we come up with now is, is, is would be largely a fiction. Uh, and that we and we've actually started. We only start reporting a number now from year 2030, uh, and that's a point when most people agree that we'll have a significant data point, which is the completion of a, a major project in the US that a lot of people are looking forward to. Uh, and then we we'll, we can we can use the type of quality of data that we're actually interested in. Um, that seems to be the point we've gotten to. Uh, it's taken a lot of discussion and debate, and of course, not everyone's happy. Yeah. Um, technically speaking, there are no small modular reactors or SMRs any in the, anywhere in the world, but using a looser de definition, the industry says that there are now two, one in Russia, the floating plant, and one in China, a high-temperature gas-cooled reactor. Had you considered including data on those two reactors, albeit the case that it's an extremely limited data set, but it's uh, arguably better than nothing. Have, have you considered reporting on those projects? Uh, we, we were concerned that the projects were so contaminated with um, different pieces of government funding and support that we didn't think that they would have bear any resemblance to what a commercial project would actually look like. Um, and, that, and to some extent, that's always a trick when it comes to nuclear uh, projects. You know, how much, how much, if any, of the projects can be viewed as purely commercial. Um, so that's that's been our reticence to really get involved in those past ones. Um, we're trying to look for some sort of a cleaner, sort of purely commercial project that, that we can see, um, represent as a cost. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly reasonable approach. Um, as you may know, I'm sure you do know, those projects in China and Russia were quite predictable in that they were many years behind schedule and uh, a long way over budget. And also the construction times for those reactors, it was 10 years in China and 12 years in Russia. Do you think the figure of a three-year construction period for SMRs in the CSIRO report is uh, a little ambitious? It's, it, we're sort of caught between the fact that the whole concept of an SMR is supposed to be this kind of modular production system. And, um, um, you know, if they can't do it within three years, it, you know, it kind of breaks down the whole concept of what the technology is supposed to be. Uh, if they can't get these nuclear small modular actors moving out of some kind of production system at a reasonable pace, then they're not really, uh, they're not really what the, supposed to be <laughs> they're not what yeah. they say they are on the box yeah 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 i see um has there been any consideration of dropping nuclear from these uh, cyro gen cost reports altogether i imagine some of the arguments might be that there's bipartisan support for legislation banning nuclear power the SMRs don't have any meaningful existence. Is there an argument for CSIRO to just drop nuclear from these reports until circumstances change around? Um, we, we still, I guess because the report has a something of a global technology focus because we've made the observation that most of the things that drive technology cost reductions are really about global technology deployment where Australia is just a small player in that. So in a sense, we, we 
you can't ever get away from nuclear because it is an established um, global generation technology, and we have to track its deployment just just because it's you know it's one of the competing global technologies. So we can't we can't ever completely remove it. It's, it's, it's part of the land, global landscape. Um, whether it's relevant for Australia, though, I, I agree, is a, um, a debatable question. And, um, you know, we don't look at large-scale nuclear and we don't look at modular nuclear until after 2030. Um, I suspect that'll just remain the case uh, for some time to come. Yeah. Um, I want to read something that you told uh, Renew Economy in one of their articles published in the past day or two. Uh, if there's too much climate policy ambition, the other technologies, namely renewables, run away with the cost reductions and nuclear can't catch up. If it looks like we have to reduce emissions much faster, then nuclear is just too slow to contribute to that. Could you expand on those thoughts? Yeah, that that was in relation to looking at our most ambitious um, uh, climate policy scenario and what we find is that the role of nuclear gets gets less and less the more climate ambition you have globally and in Australia um, because if you if you have to replace most of your electricity generation system with something that's low or zero emission by 2030 or the early 2030s uh, then nuclear just isn't going to be uh, uh, quick enough, um, you know, to take part in that. It's you know, it's going. We won't know until 2030 what this uh, US project costs are for modular reactors. And by that time, the current federal government is looking at having something like 80% renewables here in Australia anyway. So it's it, it will miss it will miss the party to some extent if we if we do go down to this um, uh, fast response and to decarbonising the electricity sector. Yeah. Um, and would your assessment be that Australia... Uh, well, there, firstly, there was a federal government department last year which was estimating 69% renewables supply to the national electricity market by 2030. Now we've got a new government anticipating 80-plus percent renewables. Um, are they kind of business as usual projections that we could be reasonably confident about or are these at the ambitious end? Uh, most most people before the federal government came in were already finding that we'd, we'd probably get to something like 65% renewables in 2030. Um, I think where, we, where the federal government comes in and potentially boosts that a bit more is they're you know, just looking to clear the way um, uh, for some of those projects to happen a bit quicker. Um, so I think it's possible, but we're sort of waiting to see the detail of how they're going to do that. Yeah, I see. Um, and could you also talk about integration costs? This is where a lot of us get lost, uh, us lay people who are not familiar with the economic jargon and so on. But um, it seems to me very important that you're talking about variable renewables plus plus integration costs. Could you explain what those costs are? Yeah, the main costs are storage and transmission. Uh, and there's two types of transmission costs. Um, on, the, on the one hand, you just have to build transmission to connect to the renewable energy production zones. There isn't 
there is an existing transmission in these places where we need to build the renewables. And the second thing is we need extra transmission to help move that energy around because it, it helps if you can access a diversity of renewables because the less coincident their production is, the less correlated their production is, uh, the easier, the less gaps there are in their sort of aggregate production profile. Um, so transmission is really useful uh, in that, both those respects. And then storage, of course, uh, the obvious, uh, is the obvious other way that we can fill in these gaps where they do exist. Um, the system also, the systems that we model also take account of any existing flexible capacity. So things like peaking gas, that's, you know, the capacity of flexible gas that's available is also very useful for supporting these systems as well. Um, but a lot of it is already built, uh, and so we just make use of that uh, in case there's any sort of really long extended periods of low renewable output. Yeah, um, and synchronous condensers are part of this picture too. Uh, could you explain what they are? And as I understand it, here in South Australia, synchronous condensers are reducing our reliance on backup gas. So could you explain what they are and how they achieve that function? Yeah, the, the electricity system's got to maintain um, uh, frequency um, just so that all the um, uh, generation is um, providing AC powers in, in a synchronous way. And um, the way we traditionally manage that is that um, all of the spinning um, generators, things like turbines and so forth, uh, they provide a certain inertia to maintain that frequency. But if you take away some of those types of generators, you can replace the, uh, them with um, these things called synchronous condensers, which are essentially other synchronous machines that are spinning, uh, but they're not otherwise generating power like a, like a gas turbine would, a gas turbine would. Um, they're just a spinning, they're actually drawing a little bit of power from the system and they're keeping mass spinning and if there's any frequency excursions they can that spinning mass that they've got uh, can just help the system uh, prevent that frequency from getting too far from where it needs to be um, and the good thing is they're reasonably cheap uh, they're just because they are just a spinning mass there's not um, um, too much complicated about them and um, when you see the way we stack the costs for integrating renewables, synchronous condenser costs are in there, uh, but they're, they're the smallest component. They're a relatively cheap part of the overall mix. Yeah, so we should expect to see many more synchronous condensers across the grid, I would imagine. Yeah, and, then, and look, they're not the only technical solution for that. Um, there's, it's expected that some types of new, more advanced inverters will also be able to supply uh, some of that effort. And there's, there's other devices as well. But um, the cost of synchronous condensers, is, condensers are well known, so we just use those as a proxy for all the other potential solutions. Yeah, and one final question, Paul. Um, summing up, so... Uh You've costed nuclear versus renewables for the year 2030, 40 and 50, and even with some fairly generous assumptions, nuclear still doesn't even come close to being economic and also doesn't work out in terms of the timelines because that's what we've been talking about. 
we're heading towards a very heavily renewable dominated grid at speed and uh, the SMRs, small modular reactors, are not even out of the blocks. So taking all that into account, how would you assess the prospects for nuclear in Australia? Uh, look, the prospects are very low. It, it would be difficult for them to come in in the 2030s in a system that's uh, already very high in variable renewables. Um, it'd be hard for them to come in and try to run that power station you know, the way they'd like to run it, in sort of a flat, uh, constant production mode. Um, they'll, you know, they'd be finding that there's not a, a really a constant demand for their output. The, their output will be... Uh, what, the, what will be in demand at that time is um, flexible generation, things like peaking gas. Um, not, we won't be looking for new baseload in the 2030s. Um, and we've already got sort of 60, 70, 80 percent renewables. Yeah, it's theoretically possible that costs could come down and that SMRs could show themselves to be capable of load following, but even under that very those generous assumptions, it's still just going to be too late, basically, for Australia at least. Yeah, the costs we've shown puts them out of the money if they're able to operate as baseload. If they, if they have to operate as some kind of peak or low following plant, the costs might double again. So, yeah, it puts them a long way out of being um, commercially viable. You're tuned in to the Radioactive Show, and that was Dr Jim Green, National Nuclear Free Campaigner with Friends of the Earth, talking with Paul Graham, Chief Economist at CSIRO's Energy Business Unit, discussing CSIRO's latest GenCost report and how nuclear power is not a cost-effective option for energy generation in Australia. We're now going to hear from Dr Margaret Beavis, a former GP and co-chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia and former president of the Medical Association for Prevention of War and she's the current co-director of Quit Nukes. Margie lays out the many other health, environmental and security issues associated with nuclear power and why it should be taken off the energy menu altogether. Dr Margie Beavis, thanks for joining us on the Radioactive Show. Uh, We've just seen the latest gen cost report from CSIRO which states that nuclear power remains a costly option for energy generation in Australia. I was hoping you could talk through some of the other issues related to nuclear power on top of this. And as we have been saying for many years, um, the issues remain the same. But back in 2015, you wrote an article in New Matilda laying out very clearly the problems associated with nuclear power. I thought we could go through that list on the show today, starting with the fact that nuclear power is too slow. Yes, I think in Australia, um, to get up a conventional nuclear power reactor would take at least two decades. And given that small modular reactors don't actually exist in terms of a production line, the imaginary production line that they talk about, um, I imagine they would take 15 to 20 years also. And there's a lot of uh, analysis of why there's such enthusiasm for small modular reactors in some quarters. And I think some people are true believers, but I think a number of them are actually banking on that delay because that, in fact, will turn out to be a proxy for coal. 
because if you put all your energy into nuclear instead of into renewables and storage, you'll have to have something to, to fill the gap and that gap would be coal. So I think whichever way you cut it, too slow, 20, 20 years is not um, an acceptable time lag. It's a bit like these, what they've done with these stupid submarines. That's not the story. Yeah, that's what you call the opportunity cost associated with nuclear power. Absolutely. I think if you focus on one thing, you take money. I mean, nuclear power, the CSIRO study highlighted this. Nuclear power is very clearly very expensive. I mean, even Matt Canavan, who's the Queensland Senate, who's such an enthusiast for nuclear power, says that, yes, energy bills will go up if we go for nuclear. Well, why should we develop this really dangerous proposition if it's not going to do anything um, in terms of um, making energy more affordable and is when, when there are another anal- other analyses there's several analyses looking at the actual uh, greenhouse gas emissions of nuclear which is why everyone pushes them but the only stage in the nuclear uh, fuel chain that is carbon dioxide free is the actual nuclear fission reactor you still have to mine, mine the uranium you still have to mill it you have, still have to fabricate it into fuel um, then you're looking at building the reactor, and building reactors uses a monumental amount of coal, concrete. And as your listeners would know, concrete's very greenhouse gas emissions intensive. And then at the end of the reactor's life, you have to decommission it. And for all of the reactor's life, you actually have to deal with the waste. And we have not, there is nowhere in the world that has successfully learned how to deal with nuclear waste um, properly. And all of this is very, all, each of those steps that I've just listed produces greenhouse gases. Each of those steps um, needs to be accounted for. And it's no use sort of pretending that they don't. And there's been several analyses comparing nuclear power to gas in terms of emissions. And depending on your analysis, um, it's almost as intensive as gas um, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, you've touched on some of the other points that you've made in that in that article. Maybe we'll come back um, to some of those. But one of the other ones was that it has nuclear power has a long history of accidents and risk of deliberate harm. I wonder if you could talk more about that. Yes, I think that's the too dangerous um, section. Nuclear power is not a safe entity. Um, you. I mean, everybody knows about Chernobyl and Fukushima. What a lot of people in Three Mile Island, there's a whole list going down of, of accidents in power plants. Nuclear power plants are sophisticated and complex, and complex systems fail. At some point, complex systems fail. Um, people were shocked that Fukushima reactor um, had the meltdowns that it did, but if any of your listeners are interested, they should have a look at the report from the Japanese Diet, the Japanese Parliament, that followed that um, reactor meltdown because they basically said this uh, power plant melting down happened because there was not enough regulation and there was too much, there was much too cosy a relationship between the government regulators and the industry. Fukushima power plant was told to build higher sea walls twice. There was modelling done twice in the lead up to that tsunami, saying you need better sea walls. They had also had placed their backup generators, pumps, in low-lying 
water in low-lying areas. So when the water came in, it knocked out their backup plans. Um, there is a whole litany of errors and things that good planning could have avoided that power plant melting down. And in fact, I read recently, I'd, I'd known that there was, um, they'd come close to evacuating Tokyo, but I hadn't realised that one of the storage ponds for the spent fuel, the fuel they don't know how to deal with, nearly drained. And if that had drained, then they definitely would have had to evacuate Tokyo. So to pretend that um, nuclear power plants are safe is just folly because A, they're complex systems, but B, you're dealing with human nature where people tend to cut corners, people tend to get a bit too cosy. There's, there's in some fields, graft and corruption. I mean, there's many reasons why systems don't work as they should, but it happens over and over again. And with nuclear reactors, you have very little margin for error. And you also write the reactors are potential targets for extremist groups. What do we know or what have we seen or um, what has the war in Ukraine added to this? Well, the Ukraine war, when they, they attacked the power plant and then took it over and then mandated that the power plant workers continued to work there, it was sort of breathtaking. And they also got into Chernobyl and sent their troops into some very, very toxic areas, really ignoring the health impacts for those troops to be exposed to the radiation that remains in Chernobyl. Um, it just shows that people don't actually get it. They don't understand that these are very dangerous places. And to be attacking a nuclear power plant is um, incredible folly because basically the nuclear bombs inside you. If, you. if you hit the reactor, the release of, of radiation can be massive and um, very toxic and kill a lot of people. So, um, yes, it, it illustrated to me how um, normalised nuclear power plants have come to the general population in many ways, but in fact they don't acknowledge that these are very dangerous places. The other, as well as attacks by extremists and hackers, the other um, facet you always have to take into account, and I don't know of any time that's happened with a nuclear power plant, but... Certainly with airplanes, there have been suicidal pilots who have taken their planes off and, and basically destroyed them. So you actually also have to take into account the possibility of severe depression or mental illness in the operators. But that's, that's a side issue. But certainly there are many, many ways that a nuclear power plant can go wrong. Yeah, and this um, also feeds into, I guess, the health, the uh, clear evidence related to health risks. What are some of the, you know, what is some of the clear evidence related to the health impacts of nuclear um, Well, it's really, there's quite a long history of this. Um, there was a nasty fire at Sellafield in Great Britain that um, I think was in the 50s, um, where they then later picked up a lot of childhood leukaemias and there was a lot of controversy about the evidence around whether that was related to the nuclear accident or not. But then the French and the Germans both looked very closely at rates of childhood leukaemia, so under 10, so children under 10, um, around nuclear power plants in France and in Germany. And both of them concluded that there was at least a doubling of the rates of childhood leukaemia. And that this was, um, in previous studies, often they hadn't looked, they'd, they'd looked too widely, so they'd, they'd looked at um, populations that were too big, so that the uh, statistical analyses didn't show this doubling. But when you did it carefully and did it using 
analysis that included how far the people lived from the reactor, um, there's certainly a marked increase in leukemia um, from living next to near a nuclear power plant. Um, other evidence that's come out, which is uh, been very clear about the damage of low-grade radiation to populations, has been a really huge study that looked at hundreds of thousands of health workers who worked in the radiation industry, in other words, the people who operated X-ray machines and did radiotherapy and such, and nuclear medicine. And they found that there was a significant increase in rates of cancer and also, interestingly, cardiovascular disease, so heart attacks and strokes. And this was such a very big study done, I think, on the average follow-up was something like 26 years, and some of them were followed up for 40 years. And so this was really conclusive evidence, but it's very hard to document small increases in rates of cancer in a large population. So there's definite health impacts. It's encouraging that under the Biden presidency, they've actually commissioned a new study and they're going to need $100 million for 15 years every year to do this study, but basically to look at what are the health impacts of small increases in radiation in a population. And so that will be interesting too, but there's very, very clear evidence that small increases in radiation do have increased rates of leukemia and potentially down the track cancers and cardiovascular disease. You've already touched on the waste issue, um, and we've talked about that a lot on the radioactive show, so perhaps we won't go too much more into that today. But another issue that you've been working on a lot lately in the past um, decade or more is around the increased risk of nuclear weapons proliferation. I wonder if you could just talk about that to to finish off this segment. Sure. Um, well, it's absolutely clear that the, um, the majority of countries that now have nuclear weapons have used nuclear power programs to either justify their um, development of weapons or to actually get hold of weapons. For instance, India um, had a power plant from Canada and then used that technology to go on to develop its weapons program. And similarly to Pakistan, certainly Israel, and I'm sure North Korea as well, have had nuclear power as the ostensible um, starting point for their weapons program. So the spread of nuclear apparatus globally um, does make it much easier for a country to synthesize highly enriched uranium and plutonium. And so there's a really clear link between nuclear power and the proliferation of nuclear weapons, and that's undeniable. Interestingly, in Australia, um, John Gorton wanted to um, get a, a nuclear reactor in Jarvis Bay in New South Wales. And he said to one of his advisors when the counterplayers came, we should get a nuclear reactor in case we need a nuclear bomb down the track. So it was as, as, as plain as that. You know, it's, it's, it's here in Australia where everyone pretends everything's hunky-dory. We too were thinking about a nuclear reactor with the potential to get weaponry down the track. Mind-boggling. Well, well, in terms of the future, um, what would you like to see? Why, why is this, why is this option still on the on the energy menu? And or would you like to see the conversation change to for Australia and the world? Well, I think it's it's astonishing given how expensive nuclear power is that it is still on the menu. I mean, it just shows the power of, of lobbying, advocacy, and vested interests. This. Nuclear power is 
expensive and getting more expensive as opposed to renewables and storage, which are less than half the cost and getting cheaper. And you just have to look at the experience in France, where the nuclear power plant they're building there is you know, more than doubled in cost and is so delayed. In England, where they had to guarantee the Chinese consortium building the Hinkley Point reactor between two and three times the current price of electricity for the next 30 years. I mean, it's a huge subsidy. So where would I like it to go in the future? I think I'd like, and I think it will happen, that nuclear power just fades out. I don't think we have the luxury of stopping it all together straight away because I think we need to um, phase it out. But I think as these reactors get older, they need to be um, put and decommissioned and for renewables to take their place with storage. That was Dr Margaret Beavis, a former GP and current co-chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia, who was talking about the many health, environmental and security risks associated with nuclear power generation and why we shouldn't even be considering it as an option for our energy future. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in. The Radioactive Show is broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri land, and broadcast all across this country on the Community Radio Network. Be sure to tune in next week for more anti-nuclear, peace and sustainability issues from all around Australia and beyond. Things we're for, and again, get that message in your head. Musical meta, morphosization, reading the freedom of information, that tuning, technology. Come on.